Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Well, I'm fine, but I'm really glad that you've managed to be here because as we know, as all regular listeners will know, Lucy is nothing if not excited at the mere mention of Terry Pratchett. And this morning (laughs) I got up and read that there were some undiscovered stories going to be published. And I thought, well, Lucy's probably having to have a lie down now. She's probably so excited. (laughs) I think you might be slightly over-egging my calm, detached, literary something. No, I was really excited, of course, to hear about it. Though I do have to add a kind of nerdy caveat. They're not Discworld stories, so I'm still very interested. But, you know, Discworld is where my heart lies. But, you know... What do you think? Because obviously, you know, you haven't even read them yet. But what is a sort of non-Discworld Terry Pratchett story? What does that look like? They're quite often recognisable as Terry Pratchett. Well, partly because they're funny, apart from anything else. And also it's often about things that are sort of fairly close to our world, but with enough, you know, enough weirdness that they're kind of Discworld adjacent. So you can often tell I'm not an expert, just a fan. (laughs) Well, that's what we like. Right. Moving away from Discworld adjacency. Lucy, what's in the paper this week? Lots of great pieces, actually. There's Hannah Sullivan on T.S. Eliot's not-so-intimate relationships. There's a review of Peter Frankopan's new book, which is kind of history as seen through climatic events rather than just human ones. It's such a good idea for a book, isn't it? Yeah, it just sounds so interesting. Yes, I think so. And then, of course, it's that thing that makes you think, well, of course, you know, it's all very well us going on about who won what battle where. But, you know, at some point, if there was a huge volcanic eruption or a or a huge storm or a tornado or something that changed the course of things, because of course they do. So that's really fascinating. And there's also a very intriguing piece on a book of poetry, sort of translated and sort of transcribed, except not really, from the cave paintings of, I actually don't know how you say this, it's the French cave paintings. Is it Lasso or is it Lascaux? I don't know how you say it. You know which ones I mean, the very early ones. I do, exactly. And... There's a series of sort of Olympian hoaxes inside hoaxes. It's quite complicated, but it's really fascinating. Do you mean there are poems sort of purporting to be from the caves? Is that what you mean? They're purporting to be translations of dots in the caves, I think. (laughs) You've got to really read it and pay attention. The reason I'm (laughs) questioning you on this is that I'm going to clearly have to get this book because my husband, a year ago or so, a couple of years ago, something came on the telly about the very cave paintings. Mm. Now, I honestly say, and I hope, you know, you take it, I wouldn't have married, you know, somebody who really was a sort of out-and-out conspiracist and believer in kind of odd things. That's very much not his bailiwick. Mm. He said to me, I just don't believe that they're real cave paintings, do you? And I said, well, of course I do. What's we do? They're like however many thousand years old. He said, "Well, how do we know? How do you know someone just didn't nip down there? I said, Why would they <laughs> and get nip down there? Get their watercolors out and do a quick 
Oh, exactly. Right. Yeah. This has gone on. And every time there is something related to the sort of cave breaking, I suppose you think that's another, somebody's been to B&Q and got some tester pots and, and gone down the cave, do you? But he's a, it's just, you know, we all have our odd beliefs, I suppose. So I'm, I'm obviously going to have to get this book for him, aren't I? Well, maybe not, because there's layers, as I say, of hoax and fiction. He might just go, see, I told you so. Uh, well, I think so he probably will. You're right. I'll hide it from him. <laughs> there we are. That's enough of my sort of domestic weirdness. Coming up on this week's show, we have something terribly exciting, actually. We've got a bonus podcast, and we're going to give you a sneak peek of it before it is released in its entirety, because it was a long and fascinating conversation. I'm going to give you a sneak peek. It's a conversation with the literary and horticultural powerhouse mother and son team that is Margaret Drabble and Joe Swift. And short stories into novels, novelists writing short stories, book a prize winners surpassing themselves, a look at current fiction in this week's TLS. But first, those of you who've heard us a bit know that as well as talking about books, we do like to have a chat about what's going on in our gardens. And it seemed to us that an ideal world would be one where we could discuss both with eminent practitioners from both fields. So lo and behold, here is a teaser of a bonus podcast that will launch soon where we do just that. We were very happy indeed to get the dream team of Margaret Drabble, novelist and critic extraordinaire, and her son, Joe Swift, Chelsea gold-winning designer, broadcaster and writer, and here they are talking to us. I don't know if this is spurious. Just tell me if you think this is a spurious link between the two. But I've thought about the fact that in gardening and in particularly fiction, what you're doing is you're creating and then controlling an environment. Definitely, yeah. yeah. And you have different levels of control, presumably. I remember mum saying that, you know, offering people advice years ago when I was a kid. You know, how do I write a novel? Well, the first thing you do is sit down and start writing. And it's like, People say to me, how do I start designing a garden? And you have to just sit down and start drawing. You have to start somewhere so that you can then, you've got something to build on, even if it's a mistake, you've at least started. And then you've got the constraints, so you've got the structure. I mean, in the garden, you've got the structure, you've got the site, you've got the budget, you've got the, the capabilities. And within a novel, I'm guessing, you know, you've got to have a very fixed structure as well. And then there's the narrative. And it... Yeah, yeah, but Joe, I said to you earlier, in fact, if you feel that within the shape of one novel, you haven't quite finished your storyline, you can actually write a sequel, which I did at one point. I wrote a trilogy, which certainly wasn't planned as a trilogy. But then Joe said to me, yeah, but on a parallel, you can just buy the garden next door and start gardening <laughs> next door. No, but you're borrowing That'd be the nice. view or you're borrowing a landscape. Yeah. And, you know, but the... Borrowing the view. Borrowing the view is a subject that has always fascinated me. The idea of the ha-ha and where you yeah. suddenly see a huge view, which isn't really yours, but yeah. you've managed to co-opt it well, into your garden. A really good garden will that has a view will always, you know, it has the context, is that sense of place is is called, you know, it's about that, you know. It has to work with that view. It has to sit comfortably with it and, you know, utilise it. But I think there are a lot of similarities. I think the thing is that when a book's finished, it's complete. And a garden, it goes on. Because when you finish mm. a garden, the, the, the design and the building, the planting of it, that's the beginning of the garden. And so you're working in with time. You're working with the fourth dimension of time. Uh, and you never quite know where it's going to end up. It's who's going to garden it, how plants are going to grow, how big, you know, you've got an idea of where it's going to end up, obviously. But that's what I love about it as well. Mm. But I think there are quite a lot of similarities in the creativity. I mean, I've got to the stage where I'm quite instinctive in my design now because I go into a garden and I know what's going to work. I know what's not going to work. I know where the key views are. I know what the palette of plants might look like. And it's a case of putting all those things together. It's, it's a craft and it's really enjoyable, you know, when you get to that level. And I'm guessing when you start a book, you've already got the key characters and the sort of the, yeah. the mood and the feel and where you're going with it. You've got your theme and your subject, which is the same as your plot or your site. Yeah. And then you, you plant it with ideas and characters and, and you develop them. I think that's absolutely true. It's, it's a, is a, a kind of comparable process going mm. on. Mm. Yeah. But a novel doesn't mature. It stays stuck in time, yeah. unlike your gardens. And, of course, now we're trying to rewrite people's novels. And I met somebody the other day who was totally pleased that he'd rewritten his own novel. 
And she said, my second version is much better than the first. Now, I don't see the point of doing that because I think once a book is finished with its faults and all, it represents the time when you wrote it and the age that you were when you did write it. And so it is as though it's a time capsule. I mean, a novel I wrote while I was expecting Joe when he was unborn was The Millstone. And that is a novel absolutely of its time. And I remember going into the nursing home where Joe was born and receiving the jacket of the millstone, which was sent to me, Quentin Blake jacket. And it just seemed absolutely perfect that here was this baby that had just been born and there was the beautiful Quentin Blake jacket of the pregnant woman on the millstone. It all seemed to fit together very, very well. Mm. And Margaret, what do you think about that book now then you're talking about it being a time capsule that's obviously different I mean it's obviously true for readers but very different when you've created something do you go back to your work on a kind of page by page level and consider it only when I'm asked to I never reread things just for the sake of seeing what's in them but if I'm asked a question I do go back and look and sometimes I'm wrong I've misremembered it's weird I mean I've always written very much about the times I'm living in, and I've tended to write about people of my own age, so my characters have grown old with me. So it's as though they are a sort of picture of social history, and they Mm. can't be anything else because I was there when I was observing it. But it's embarrassing when you look back and you find you've used words that you wouldn't now use, and not because of political correctness, but because of sensitivity and jokes you wouldn't make now, things you wouldn't think. But there they are, and that's the way they are. But with a garden, things grow in a completely different way, unless they're artificially preserved, like Versailles. Well, that's the concern, Mm. I think, with a garden. You know, it can be the sort of the kiss of death of a garden if you're trying to create a time capsule. Because a time capsule in the garden, it it will date quite quickly. And, you know, if you go to somewhere like Great Dixter, where they're constantly changing things and it's evolving, and Fergus, who's taken it over, has had the, has taken the mantle. Where you go to a National Trust garden sometimes, I'm not, I'm not slagging off the National Trust, but, you know, or even Sissinghurst. I remember talking to um, Sarah Raven, who who inherited Sissinghurst. Well, he's very involved in Sissinghurst. And... You know, do you just set it in aspic and do you try and keep it exactly how it was? Or, no, that's not a garden. I mean, no, gardens but, don't but, work like that. But, Joe, mm. you and I both love Penwood. And Penwood has got a escaped garden. Mm. And it has a timeless quality, but it was created at a certain point. But I don't want Penwood to change too much because it is very much of its time and it belongs to the Kenwood house and the views and the and the little lake and the birds and Johnson's summer house was vandalised and has gone, but there's the Henry Moore in the garden, which aren't of the period, but everything is a harmonious whole. I wouldn't want them to dig all that up. No, 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 no. It's about being sensitive. No, I totally agree. That's got a very strong character. And why would you want to change it? But they have cut back those. I was up there last year. They cut those rose engines really hard back as the camellias, because it needs maintaining. But no, they're not going to do anything radical. Is that a garden? I mean, that's a landscape. That's a public park, really. But yeah, it's, oh, it's tricky, but you can't. We've got to maintain this exactly how it is. And when those Henry Moores went in, okay, that would have been a radical thing to do. And people protested. And people would have protested, but it worked beautifully. And so it's that intervention, I guess, has to just be really spot on. Mm. But... I think normally with gardens, they do progress and they, you know, they will develop over time and they will be changed and uh, as opposed to, you know, your, the millstone, which will never be changed. Hopefully. No, no, because it is a spotlight on a certain period of yeah. Um, history. Yeah. It's a different thing. Yeah. It is, Margaret, but it's also a book that I think you can read now and see an extraordinarily sort of enduring portrait of a woman coming into her own voice. I mean, it's not that its specifics might be dated, but much like a, you know, a wonderful garden, that the core of it doesn't feel like it sort of belongs to another time in the sense that it's relevant. We watched a movie the other day of it. And, oh, uh, amazing. I didn't even know there was a movie of it. And it's, it was, quite, it's quite good. <laughs> and, and it was great. And it felt very relevant. I thought it felt very relevant. Isn't it a wonderful film? And it's obviously it wasn't... Margaret, what's your your sort of memory of that film? It's not called The Millstone, is it? 
No, it was given various titles, mm. not very happy. Mind you, the Millstone is a rather gloomy title, so it's <laughs> a very odd title. But, but I have very happy memories of that film because the director was somebody I knew at Cambridge, Ian McKellen, who was a good friend, was in it. Eleanor Braun, another dear friend, was in it. And so it was very much an extension of my acting life. That's what it was. It was as though on screen... This was a low-budget movie, if ever there was one. But when I watched it and then saw it again recently, I saw it at the um, BFI and then I saw it on telly the other night completely by accident. It's, it is like stepping back into that world of theatre people and friends and Ian McKellen with his Scotty dog sitting in Regent's Park. It was just so evocative of a moment in time. Beautiful. We should say for our, our listeners, it's uh, who might want to go and see it out. I think it's a wonderful novel, but it was filmed under the title "A Touch of Love," wasn't it? And it's available on YouTube. I watched it straight out of YouTube. It's on YouTube. Mm. The whole, you know, the whole movie. Yeah. Wonders it's, of the modern world, you see. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, I have to go back like tiny bit. I'm just really imagining what it's to be like. This is not given to many people to know that your mother was creating a work of fiction as you were also being created. That's special, isn't it? Well, his mum was always sort of locked away in her, you know, all you could hear was a typewriter just banging away, you know, and, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a lively household and we would try and disturb mum as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just amazed that, you know, you were doing that. I mean, you know, and then, yeah, in the 70s, you were really busy. I mean, you were sort of like, you were being celebrated, you know, you were very successful, and it was uh, it was great. And people would be popping around to the house all the time. Yeah. All these, you know, yeah, people like, yeah, Eleanor and uh, Ian McKellen. We had a uh, very, very big Nails done, and I... people would always be coming, always lively. I mean, proper 60s, swinging 60s and 70s. I like take that. exception to his phrase that I was locked away. I never locked the door. <laughs> they were always running around and interfering. And I remember very well yeah, when I was... must have been impossible. It was impossible. Oh, Working couldn't... conditions were terrible. When I died in the garden, I put earplugs in. I said, I cannot... That I can't cope with any distraction whatsoever. And oh. you were constantly being distracted. I, I just hammered away. I did hammer away, and I made a terrible noise on the old manual typewriter. But um, there was always something else going on in the house or almost always 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 yeah yeah there is a distinction isn't there margaret between obviously your sort of london life and your somerset life and in the latter i mean the work went into the garden didn't it you know you work from a shed i had a very nice garden house built by a friend of joe's right at the end of the garden and i did write two or three novels there and now I can't get to the country so often. And also, since electricity became so important to my writing life, I did have electrics in my garden house to begin with, in my garden study, but the mice kept chewing through it. So I, it was a question of sort of either kind of running back to charge a battery. So I don't write so much there as I used to do, but it is still looking absolutely wonderful. It's in very good condition because Joe's friend built it very well. <laughs> mm. and the view down that garden now joe has just re-landscaped that view i haven't even seen it since it was done but the view down this very very long thin garden by the sea he landscaped it so that some of the plants i don't know how it, he must have envisaged this there were waves of shrubbery that looked just like white waves on the sea and grasses growing what were these big white bushes you have absolutely want silvery grey white and they just look like an unfolding waves and there's the sea just next to it it was it's very very beautiful and when you're feeling housebound as I sometimes am just sit at the window and look at it it's mm. wonderful well also yeah whoever maintains your hedges have got amazing oh hedges. our gardener there who does the hedges he has cut amazingly the organic into a serpentine I mean I say to him it, it's better than um god what's that place that oh dear the National Trust Garden with those amazing yew trees on the way to Porlock. Anyway, it looks better than any of those topographical miracles because he just carves it into a sea. It's a sea serpent by the sea. Yeah, yeah. And people stop and look at it and admire it. And I heard one woman saying, oh, that's a very odd hedge. And the other one said, well, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it looks just so well looked after and beautiful. Well, talk about borrowing the view. That's like the ultimate yes, view to book. Yes. 
No, just a square hedge wouldn't have worked at all because you're looking out onto the beach and then the sea and you know, it's just it's a beautiful sculptural thing in itself and it keeps yeah. changing it's, it's always slightly changing of course which is Montacute is the house I was thinking uh, of yeah. oh, I, yes. I did say to Dean your hedge is better than Montacute and he, he's very proud of it oh <laughs> goodness I wanted to ask quite a sort of practical question from the point of view that Joe, you're a garden designer and broadcaster, but you are also a writer of newspaper columns and books. And of course, it's a different kind of writing. But do you or have you felt your mother's influence? Have you felt Margaret's influence as a writer? Are there things you feel you should or shouldn't do? And also, Margaret, do you feel the same about gardening? Do you feel that there are things you should or shouldn't do according to, to Joe's work? Well, I feel I don't look after my gardens well enough, but I'm too old to bother about that now. But um, I do ask Joe's advice a lot about the gardens. And he ticks me off if certain things haven't been looked after properly. So he keeps an eye on Oh, I just in every now and then. Yeah, yeah, you do. No, you do. He's been very, very good about it. My dad was an actor. You know, my mum's a writer. And, and it's all about characters. And my work is all about, sorry, my favourite subject, me, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's me being myself and my passion for gardening. So I have a voice and I'm very like, so when I write, I have a voice because people might know me from the TV or whatever. And also it's all very often practical advice, but it's uh, hopefully inspirational and trying to get people to grow stuff and, and why they should grow stuff and but how to grow certain plants or how to design or how to approach design. So it's all, it's all, it's a very different uh, type of writing, I would say. But I have got to say, you know, when I first started writing for The Independent and I write for The Times and stuff, you know, I used to read all the edits that they had done and I learned a lot from that and now they don't edit me so much so I must be doing a better job <laughs> but I, as a kid I was not I was the least literary kid in the whole family I mean Becky my sister was very literary and my brother was very academic so I just spent all the time outdoors you know running around getting away from um, books really <laughs> that's the truth and that's where I found my love of nature and that's why I'm a very practical person I like building stuff I like, like seeing stuff you know rather than just a sort of piece of paper going from one side of a desk to another I love to see a garden come together or buildings come together or, you know, that visual aspect. And so with my writing, I try and get my personality into it, I think, really. And it's a very different format. You know, I mean, at times it's like six, seven hundred yeah. words a week, very tight. So it's very different. But in the back of my mind, I have got my mum sort of marking, yeah, marking my homework a bit. Oh, he kept his literary talents very, very quiet. I mean, he concealed them. And when he stopped at publishing, I was frankly astonished. I thought, good heavens, he sat, he sat down and written several hundred Look, words. People are actually paying him for I that stuff. I was very impressed. But he did actually, his first writing skills were shown when he wrote me very nice letters from Israel when he was working on a kibbutz. Yeah. Do you remember that? And I think they made you write home. Like no, when... they didn't make me write home. <laughs> well, you did write home, and I thought, good God, here's a letter. No, they made Israel. me go to work in the fish farms and the date farms. That's what they made me do, but they in didn't make me do any writing. You voluntarily wrote me those very nice letters. Yeah, well, that was it. We didn't have texts and faxes. Well, we probably had a fax, but we didn't have emails and everything, and yeah. Well, and I if I didn't write to you, I wouldn't get one back. That's true. We did write to each other, but that mm. seems a very old-fashioned thing to do. It was now. nice, probably. Yeah, it was nice, yes. But, you know, I remember at school being taught how to write a letter. You know. Taught how to write <laughs> we a letter. We were taught how to write a letter yeah. and all that sort of, you know, grammar. And uh, Nobody does that now. No, I don't think does. people do write letters anymore, then. No. no, probably not. You've still got the letters, haven't you, Margaret? They're in Cambridge University Library. Oh, oh there you go. I, oh, I, still, <laughs> I started to clear things out. Because I knew I was on the verge of throwing all sorts of things away. And I deposited a few years ago quite a lot of correspondence from distinguished people like Joe Swift and Doris, <laughs> Angus Wilson, and Doris Lessing, you know, all these people. So they're all being safely looked after in the basement at Cambridge University Library. Because otherwise I know that a terrible fit would have come over me and I'd have started throwing out. Oh, I better look for the ones you wrote to me then. I've got them somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. I wanted to just, I know you just, now, Joe, you've just said that you spent your time running away from books, though you seem to have kind of run back towards them. But I wanted to ask if either of you have a a favourite garden in literature. It doesn't even have to be in literature, but a sort of garden of the imagination, perhaps. Where the Wild Things Are, the kids' books. Oh, yeah. You know, yes. that was me, you know, <laughs> trying to, climbing out the window. 
and the sort of the wildness of nature and the beast. I just love that book and the way it just can't, you know, the climbers come into his bedroom mm. and that imagination. And so my kids had that book, obviously. And now I'm a grandfather. Uh, my granddaughter's going to get it as well. But I just love the pictures and, and the naughtiness. Is yeah, a naughty the rumpus. Book. Yeah, yeah. It's a great book. But otherwise, mm. there's not that many books in literature that stand out to me, but I bet you've got no, no, not not so much, really. I never read The Secret Garden when I was a child. And I think I began to be very much aware of gardens. The Garden of Eden in Paradise Lost had a tremendous impact on me when I was a schoolgirl still. I've always been fascinated by the idea that gardens, even in the state of nature, the Garden of Eden, they require a lot of work. They don't just look nice by themselves. And I just found that the concept of Adam and Eve working in the Garden of Eden, I think that was one of my primal images of gardens. It's a very, very fruitful. It's also quite a sexual garden. I mean, it's full of bosky bars and gushing water and hairy trees. And I just loved all that. So that was, I think, one of my primal images of gardens and I must have been 16 when I read that I can't think of anything I read as a child that charmed me totally as the secret garden might have done had I ever come across it which I didn't that was Margaret Drabble and Joe Swift talking about books and gardens look out for our full bonus episode with them coming out soon Still to come on the show, fiction shot through with Shakespeare and loss. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. So this week, in the riches of our fiction pages, we have a novel about stress and dilemma in a build-up to a performance of King Lear, and more Shakespeare in the mix in the form of Burnham Wood, the new offering from Eleanor Catton, who won the Booker Prize for her last novel, Luminaries. And we'll also look at a set of short stories by an author you may have heard of, one Margaret Atwood, reviewed by someone else you may have heard of, our own Alex Clark. So here to guide us through this wondrous maze is the TLS's fiction editor, Toby Lichtig. Toby, thank you for joining us. Hello, lovely to be here again. Can you tell us about this Shakespearean theme that there is running through and about each book? What about the first one, which is the one about King Lear? Yes, so this is, it's a novel by Richard Bauch, reviewed by Randy Boyagoda. And Richard Bauch, he's more well-known as a short story writer, writer of short stories. And actually our reviewer, Randy Boyagoda, really likes his stories. Um, You know, he says that he's, He's very, very good at capturing tense moments and relationships. 
he's a very, very good kind of quick delineator of character. He is slightly less enamoured of this new novel, Playhouse, which is basically, it's about this theatrical troupe who's preparing for a production of King Lear to open this new Playhouse. And essentially, as far as I understand it from the piece, he basically, he feels the author just loses control of his characters. There's just too much going on, too many people. He can't rein it in. <laughs> He's better on a small canvas. And actually, we'll, we'll get on to the piece from Eleanor Catton in a second, which has the Macbeth echoes. This is obviously about a production of King Lear. It's got Lyrian echoes throughout. Mm. And the reviewer sort of feels that the theme hasn't actually been realised to its full potential. Actually, some of the sort of the, the ideas in Lear aren't sort of fully realised. And when they are, it's sort of a bit clunkingly. So it's a reminder of how, I suppose, when you're using other narratives, other stories for your own, you sort of, there's a subtlety with which you need to do it. And Claire Loudon actually mm. makes this point in her piece in Eleanor Catton with this metaphor of scaffolding. You know, writers often have scaffolding. Oh, yes. Yeah, that she got from um, Zadie Smith. Isn't Zadie that Smith, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Zadie Smith. And Zadie Smith's point is it's great, you know, if you feel that in order to construct your story, you need to base it around the stars of the Zodiac or the novels of Edith Wharton or all the things you ate for breakfast, that's fine. But you then need to take your scaffolding down. <laughs> Mm, it's end. like don't don't show you're working kind don't of show you're working exactly and i it's don't you... know if either of you agree with me obviously the tone of my voice is sort of commanding that you will <laughs> let's see <laughs> shall we <laughs> <laughs> the great king lear novel as it were is jane smiley's a thousand acres i haven't read it i'm afraid no, but so i will neither. agree i will agree with you i'd so do i agree with you as well you will so very much after you've got hold of a copy and read it you will definitely agree with me but it's set on a farm the three daughters you know the farm is sort of unevenly divided up between them it's some years ago it came out but i think that you may never have heard of king lear and could read that novel and it wouldn't matter to you mm, well, exactly i think that's the point and what she does there is bring in themes. Well, I think this is often interesting when people are working with this sort of source material, kind of reimagining it in a certain way. They're bringing out a theme that feels implicit in the original, perhaps, because we know it's a play, King Lear, at some level that has to do with this sort of intense, in-depth kind of sibling, paternal sort of rivalry, bond, buried trauma and they bring out that trauma in another way. So there's a lot of, about sort of parental abuse in Jane Smiley's version. She also, I'm now thinking, reversioned Boccaccio's Decameron in Ten Days in the Hills. She's obviously, obviously her thing, not to mention her Greenland sagas. I'm riffing now on my love for Jane Smiley. Toby, <laughs> get us back to the point, or, or, or somebody take us back to novels that are actually being published now. I'll say, Grey Jenkins, so that there have been quite a few other novels. There was Learwife a couple of years ago, wasn't there, by J.R. Thorpe, which I think was relatively successful. And again, it does that thing, but it takes it in a different direction. I think it's a sort of feminist retelling. And I think that's sort of what you need to do. You need to, you can't just, you know, use your source material just to rework. I mean, you mm. can if you want to, but it's uh, those that tend to be the less successful novels, I think. And so moving swiftly and seamlessly onto Burnham Wood, which is Eleanor Catton's new novel, which Claire Loudon reviewed for us, one of the points she makes is you know, Burnham Wood, obviously that's the wood in Macbeth, and there are Macbethian echoes throughout, but they're done subtly, and there isn't a sort of a, a mapping where, you know, one character is... Lady Macbeth and the other character is Macbeth and the other character is Duncan mm. or anything like that. The themes and the tropes and the ideas of ambition and greed and jealousy and all the rest of it are woven in with echoes, but without actually being overbearing. And I'm sure most of our listeners probably have seen or read or heard about Macbeth in some way or, or another, but you don't need to be familiar with Macbeth to enjoy Burnham Wood, I don't think. Mm. So that one hasn't got scaffolding, as it were. That, exactly. Claire makes the point, actually says there's no need for scaffolding. You know, the point is, Eleanor Caston may have used the scaffolding and taken it down. We don't know. That's the whole point about scaffolding being taken down, or she may not have used it in the first place. That's the beauty of the way she's done it. Uh, but she makes a very good point as well. I mean, she, I love this piece. It's a really, really good review. I urge mm. everyone to go and read it. It's a thriller in its own right, this piece. It's a whole narrative. It starts off, you think, ah, oh, Claire Loud, you know, she's a forthright reviewer. She's, it's going to be a hatchet job because she does not like Eleanor Catton's previous novel, The Luminaries, which of course won the Booker Prize about 10 years ago, making the author the youngest ever winner of the Booker. And which I love, by the way. Which you love. <laughs> which I love, because I just found it, it seemed to me full of play. That's what I liked about it, that you were in this world of the historical novel, you were in this novel of apparently of astrology, 
but it seemed full of sort of fun and play as well as seriousness. But that, you know, Claire Loudon and I don't have to agree. Either. No, you certainly don't. Well, I'd be interested to know whether you like Burnham Wood more or less, or perhaps just the same. Claire basically found, I think she referred to the luminaries as something like, uh, you know, an overblown children's book. That sounds very, very harsh, but that's her line. And she feels that the kind of the astrology theme was just, it was it was overworked and it was there was just too much of it all. And although it was a very, very long book, actually it sort of, she sort of wanted more, didn't she? She thought it needed more. Yeah, exactly. It was a long book that somehow needed more. But, you know, anyway, mm. so you, you think, OK, well, here we are. She's not going to like this one either. Yeah. There's a wonderful switch in the piece. And you sort of suddenly realise that this new book is everything that <laughs> everything that Claire wanted the luminaries to be in more. And interestingly, you know, it's a very different setting. So the luminaries is set in, in the 19th century and it involves illegal mining and smuggling operations. This is set in the 21st century amongst a guerrilla gardening collective. That's what we like. We like guerrilla gardening collectives. Very, very on theme for, for this <laughs> podcast. But it also features illegal mining and smuggling operations, much more to do with the, you know, kind of sort of contemporary ecological concerns. And so in a way, Claire feels that Catherine sort of reworked similar ideas, but completely updated them. And she's done it in a very, very clever, subtle way. She really likes the writing. I mean, you know, the characterization sounds great. And also the plot. I mean, she hasn't given too much away. I haven't actually read Burnham Wood yet. I am going to very soon because I'm going to be interviewing Eleanor Catton um, at Hay later mm. this year. And I'm really looking forward to that. But the plot sounds just completely fantastic. And, you know, she refers to the book basically as an intelligent eco-thriller, but not, not in a bad way. She really says, oh, the plot's really good, really satisfying, really intricate. And that says it's like a thriller, doesn't it? Yeah. But that's very, yeah. And that's very nice to hear because for us simple souls, I do like a bit of plot. <laughs> but it's a bit infradig. It can be. <laughs> it's a bit, you know, to sort of worry about plot. But I'm really, really looking forward to this book, evidently, you know, and I'm going to see her. Not Well, I'm sure I'll come and see her in conversation with you, Toby. Of course I will. But I'm, in fact, this week, by the time this podcast comes out, I will have seen her in conversation. I will get a copy then and can't wait Great. to read it. It's really interesting. Yeah, that thing about the overblown children's book has put me in mind of that very lengthy and well-argued, I thought, review that James Wood wrote of Donna hearts the goldfinch mm. where he kind of argued for it do you remember as being part of children's literature essentially and i love the goldfinch so i'm now wondering if this is basically i just want to read children's books nothing wrong with that updated. nothing wrong with that at all suppose not no. <laughs> i suppose not now watch this segue from children to babes or rather old babes in the <laughs> very <world>. good <laughs> Very, very Alex good. Clark has reviewed Margaret Atwood's new collection. Is it me? <laughs> Could it be? So, can I just say before you start um, butting in, before you've even started, mm. it's interesting. There's something about novelists and short stories because the first piece, there's someone well known for short stories who our reviewer feels hasn't quite pulled off the novel, and Margaret Atwood, obviously we know, is pretty good at novels. And, you know, how is she at short stories? I'm glad you noticed that theme, Lucy, because I, I do try to make my fiction pieces speak to each other in a spread. And as well as that little Shakespearean echo, that, that's exactly what I was trying for. Thank you for noticing. You're welcome. But Toby, has Margaret Atwood herself ever taken on a Shakespearean theme? Why, yes, Why, she yes, has. she has. <laughs> in, in actually, her, the, the novel she wrote, Hagseed, that was a sort of updating of The Tempest, which was in a series. I mean, it, it was very much sort of, we're going to ask contemporary writers to do this. But I felt it was of that series that came out of, you know, over the last few years, was one of the absolutely the most successful because it gave The Tempest a sort of, I guess, a kind of resetting that was entirely truthful to the idea of The Tempest because it was about imprisonment. It was about a group of prisoners putting it on, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And I'm trying to remember now who did the Lear one, but I suddenly can't. That's no use to anyone. Listeners, do write in and tell us. Yeah, write yes, in, please. listeners. Ian McEwan did Nutshell, didn't he? He did Hamlet. That was in that series. Pretty sure. Anyway, yes, let's yes, move on. Yes, yes. So, Old Babes in the Woods. Why did you ask me to review this collection of short stories? What What was it about Alex Clark that you thought? <laughs> <laughs> I can't reveal my commissioning work. <laughs> I'm referring to myself in the third person. It's a sure sign of delusions of grandeur. But I was very delighted when you did ask me to. It's because I knew you did a brilliant job and you did indeed do a brilliant job. And now why don't you tell our, our listeners what it is about the book that you enjoyed and how 
is structured and what there is to say about permeability and why we end up with an interview between Margaret Atwood and George Orwell. I know it's such an interesting collection. I mean, the old babes in the world will sort of necessarily, you know, tell you that it is about aging. And that story, actually, the title story that appears quite towards the end of the book is apparently very gentle. It's about one of the key protagonists, Nell and her sister at their sort of family cottage at the lakes. And all they are doing is making lists of what they have to do to stop this place falling down. It's basically attempting to sort of carry water up a hill, despite the fact that they've got creaky hips and sore joints, uh, avoiding stubbing their toes on rocks that stick out, emptying Wellington boots from little kind of mice nests that have been made in them. And it's a sort of trying to, I don't know, I suppose shore up fragments against your ruin uh, and it's about the ruin and depredation of old age so you have these quite, quite sort of in a sense naturalistic stories about Nell and Tig Nell and her husband Tig and by the end of the book Tig has died and it's about widowhood but they're grouped on either side of this central spine which is essentially a sort of collection of jeux d'esprit almost and one of them is as, as you mentioned an apparent interview between Margaret Atwood and George Orwell conducted through a medium. Is it laid out like a dialogue? Yep. Oh, okay. So it's like Margaret Atwood, George Orwell. Absolutely. Speaks, in which, speaks. And Margaret Atwood, one of the things I liked about it mentioned in the review, that it really chimes, I mean, this is a sort of niche chime, I admit, but it chimes if you are somebody who has interviewed anyone, but perhaps specifically a writer, where you as the interviewer are trying to sort of essentially kind of butter them up you're being rather ingratiating and the, and the person you're interviewing is having absolutely none of it so there's a, a wonderful moment in the dialogue between them where they're talking about satire and margaret atwood says to george orwell who she can't see because they're talking through a, a medium i'd love a film called the death of stalin and he sort of says no i don't think i would actually no it's marvelous and he says it's not very it's not brilliant for me to see films i have to see them through someone else's eyes and she will not be deterred and she says you could see it with me i'd love to see it again and he kind of says no thanks. And it's just like, you're really trying to make your interview subject be your best friend. And they're just like, I know. No, I'm all right. Thank you. Given how much of her time she spends being interviewed by well, these things, it shows a great sympathy, mm. doesn't it, on her part? Mm. <laughs> you know, there is an awful lot about bereavement and ageing in this in this collection, isn't there? And Atwood mm. lost her own partner a couple of years ago, which you sort of talk about. And she's, there's something somehow, for me anyway, sort of slightly ageless about, about Margaret Atwood. And one sort of just feels she'll, she'll be with us forever. But she's 83. I hadn't realised mm. she was actually quite so old. And um yes. You know, yes. it's uh, firstly, it's yes, it's great that she's that she's still writing to such a wonderful high standard and so prolifically. But there is sort of a, a slightly new tone to, to her writing, isn't there? Yes, that's right. I mean, I think that she's often had this tone where there is a kind of very sort of, well, we've been talking about scaffolding. The scaffolding can be terribly sort of baroque, you know, and it could be dystopian. It could be her sort of extraordinary kind of eco imaginings. I mean, all sorts of things. The, the early novels, something like Lady Oracle, which is a kind of slightly fantastical novel too. But then often the voice of the person that you're seeing the story from can be very sort of restrained and quiet and inward and reflective almost. And I think even in, as I, you know, as I've sort of called these stories in the centre of the book, the jeu d'esprit of the book, even there, I think that perhaps that reflective tone is being sort of amped up a bit. And because, you know, there are these kind of stories that are as you know, fantastical. There's a, a woman remembering her mother and and almost thinking, wondering whether her mother was actually a witch. And this, you know, is a sort of funny story, but it's also a story about her mother's sort of descent into old age and her sort of losing of her powers. There's a lot about the loss of power. There's also a kind of very funny satirical story about three female academics who gather as part of a committee and what their committee is doing they want to endow something for a sort of future female academic but they are so bewildered by the sort of current demands of academia and you know in terms of how you address identity how you try to empower people they just they essentially have to sort of give up as they pour ever and ever larger gins uh, and they eventually have to kind of desperately call a younger academic and say can you just come over because we just don't know what we're doing it's very funny 
but it is also about, as I'm saying, that sort of a kind of loss of power, the loss of your sort of grip in the world, I suppose. Mm. And these reflect on the kind of the stories that bookend it, don't they? The ones that are more sort of directly about bereavement and ageing. Yes, exactly. Which, uh, Lucy, you were mentioning that one of one of them appeared just very recently, and it is the story of somebody who answers a letter, a letter saying, you know, how are you doing? You've been bereaved. I'm very sorry. How are you? And mm. they answer truthfully, and then they just don't send it, and they send it a much shorter letter. And there is that sort of idea of how you fit into the world when you, well, obviously you've lost, in this case, your partner, but how you manage to negotiate the people who are trying to negotiate you. And it's it's very, it's very, very sympathetically and, as I say, reflectively done. Mm. Toby, you mentioned that she had lost her partner a couple of years ago. So, the, you know, it seems legitimate to draw some sort of parallel maybe here. Is this the first time she's got this close, do you think, to perhaps mirroring her own circumstances or...? I mean, I just don't know. I know a lot of her work is very fantastical, so it would, you know, you can't map it on. But do you think that does it feel particularly personal? I suppose is what I'm asking. Yes, I think it does. Sorry, Toby, I jumped in to answer there, but that is, yes, I. You're the reviewer. Go for it. <laughs> I don't know what you think. Well, there's also a bunch of rumours as well, you know, because we we talk about her as perhaps better known these days as a novelist, but she's written many short stories. There's also the poetry, isn't there? She's written lots of poetry over the years. Mm. Yes. Actually, I think we published some of her poetry ages ago in the TLS, in like the 70s it or something. certainly had a more personal tone. Did it? Yeah. Mm. There is poetry in this collection of short stories, and it's in a rather curious story that I, I, I don't say I struggled with, but it was, it was harder, I suppose, to get to grips with. It was more, there was a lot going on in it, but it had a very interesting, you know, central sort of point. And it was poetry written by Nell, this character who has been widowed, by her father-in-law, who has also died a long time previously, but she comes across this sort of cache of poems that had been kept by her husband, and they're wartime poems. And in fact, they they actually involve a real character. They involve Martha Gellhorn, who it appears has Mm. met her father-in-law during the Second World War. And there is a, a store of poems that she reproduces. And obviously, she, Margaret Atwood, writes. And it's very interesting because it brings up that thing that not only when someone dies, you're also dealing not only with their things, but the things that belong to the pe- the stories of other people, mm. things that have been left to them. And the stories get so far away from you. When does that filament break? When, in a sense, are you allowed to actually cut that filament and let things go and think and say I just don't know what these have no direct meaning for me so Mm. how do I preserve their meaning and the more I sort of thought about that story the more it did begin to sort of resonate with me and kind of make sense to me as it were but it was quite a it's quite a complicated sort of idea when is the point when you stop trying to make things make meaning Mm. do they work as short stories do they sort of talk to each other not I mean maybe not obviously I mean does it work as a collection of short stories is she as impressive as a short story writer as a novelist yes I mean they have you know I don't know exactly about the construction of them because I know that they you know various of them have appeared in different places but I do feel that this sort of grouping and arrangement is not simply a sort of post hoc organization I mean they do to me feel like they're very much of a theme but just the way that they're kind of organized so it is quite sort of an unusual thing that you read um, sort of three or four stories about this about this couple uh, and various things related to their life and then you go into this other sort of slightly different register and then you return and it's unusual and quite sort of experimental but actually it, for me anyway it really worked mm. it sounds really good it sounds really wonderful I shall be reading that myself soon. What else are you looking forward to that's coming up, Toby, fiction-wise? So in next week's fiction pages, we're running a really nice piece by Claire Pettit on this re-translated Italian book called Forbidden Notebook by this wonderful Italian author called Alba Di... I'm going to pronounce it very badly because she was Italo-Cuban, so it's probably have to do it with a Cuban accent, but it's Cespedes is the name. And she was very, very well known in her day. I actually read it, The Bidden Notebook, in this translation by Anne Goldstein. And it's a sort of a, 
you can see why Elena Ferrante loves it. And I think it was a, one of her great inspirations, De Cespedes, and I think this book in particular. It's, just, it's about, it's basically this woman in early 1950s Rome buys herself a notebook and starts a diary sort of away from the gaze of her husband and her two almost grown up children. Mm. And it's about sort of her own self-realisation in this rather claustrophobic domestic sphere as she suddenly realises she has feelings for her boss and various other things she sort of as the words come out on the page she begins to understand herself better and it's really really clever and really beautifully done and uh, it was actually serialized back in the days before Substack. i think it was basically serialized concurrently with the dates of the diary oh you mean when it when it was originally published it was serialized oh i think the first entry in the diary sort of november the 26th 1951 or something like that and that is the first date it appeared in the paper oh gosh which it was serialized and it was serialized over six months it's really 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 good i would recommend anyone to read it actually i think it's wonderful and it's it's out yes i think it's out next week in this country with pushkin press it's a really good book Mm. well we must look out for that yeah that's the things that we have to look out for and look out for the review in next week's paper Yes, yes, of course. So we need to say thank you to Toby for joining us. And do I do I say thank you, Alex, for joining us? And but you're Alex, you're staying with us. I'll take off <laughs> I put my reviewer hat on. Okay, and now you could put on your jolly presenter hat. But that was all completely fascinating. So to read all of that, you're gonna to have to read the TLS this week. And in fact, next week it turns out. And read all the books involved and talk to us about it. But until then, Toby and Alex. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me, Lucy. (laughs) Thank you. have time for this week our thanks go to margaret drabble joe swift and toby lishtig thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye 